is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The conversation around kids and drugs used to sound like this from Nancy Reagan in 1986. Our young people are helping us lead the way. Not long ago in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. And I answered, just say no. Soon after that, those children in Oakland formed a Just Say No club. And now there are over 10,000 such clubs all over the country. But these days, in Colorado, with marijuana especially, it's infinitely more complicated than just say no. I mean, kids walk past dispensaries. They may see their own parents partake. Today, how to talk to kids about marijuana 2.0. It's worth noting that since legalization here, teen use generally has gone down. One of the exceptions is Montrose on the Western Slope. Teen use there rose substantially from 2015 to 2017. It's why the school district is putting on a symposium to address cannabis use. One of the speakers is Ben Court of Boulder, an expert in marijuana education and author of Weed, Inc. Court has worked in substance abuse treatment after struggling with addiction as a teen. Ben, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. So teen use went up in Montrose. It was the same, actually, for the Northeastern Plains. I wonder if you were surprised, though, by the fall in so many other parts of the state. Yes, some of that first data really did catch me off guard. And I'm kind of curious to see what continues to happen as we keep monitoring it. Um, we know that perceived risk keeps going down. So I'm, I'm curious what will happen in the long term. But there were definitely some, some good news in, in a lot of that data as well. Okay. Well, your audience is frequently school kids. And uh, you say, this isn't your grandma's weed. What do you mean when you say that? <laughs> well, I have said that. And while I, I don't know necessarily if my grandmother consumed, I certainly know my my parents did. Um, you, you, what we have to remember is how dramatically the potency has changed from not even in like grandma's day, but in my day. I got sober in, in 1996. And back then, your national averages for marijuana potency were maybe 8% THC. The really good stuff was double digits, 10, 11. And in Colorado, um, we can find flour that has 40% THC and our concentrates, especially our distillates, you know, pushing that 99.9% pure THC is, um, it's, it's just a very, very different thing. It's become a product more than a plant. Now, you have to be careful about how you frame that for kids because that could all become a selling point, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it certainly could. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, uh, the, the more, the faster, the better. The thing with young people that they have to understand is the more potent it is, the more potential harms there are inside of their developing brain. So what you've really got to do is kind of draw that parallel for them pretty quickly. Yeah, how do you do that in a way that doesn't sound like, one, you're wagging your finger at them? And two, in a way that might even bore brain scientists. I guess it's the biggest challenge when I go into a room with young people because you can't necessarily attempt to unpack all of the science with them. And you also, the last thing in the world that you want to do is wag your finger at them. I, I can't imagine anything that would have been more of a turnoff for me when I was young. So what I really try and do is, is share a little bit about my own experience when I was that age and then also just get them to recognize that we're talking about something for grown-ups and not something 
for developing brains. And a lot of the times the kids can understand that because there's plenty of things inside of this country that we say, okay, once you've got a, an adult's brain, we can tolerate this. And when you don't have an adult's brain, we cannot. But you nail it on the head, Ryan. I mean, that is the line that you're constantly trying to straddle. Well, it's really interesting because what you're not saying there is kids never, ever use marijuana in your lives. That's not your message. <laughs> I'm a recovering drug addict, Ryan, and, and for me to tell somebody how they should live their life is uh, kind of the the apex of foolishness, I think, in a lot of different ways. So, no, I, I don't do that at all. What I try to do is explain to them a, a little bit about what might happen inside of their developing brains. And, you, you know, it's a terrible thing when people take choice away from us. I don't think any of us want to live in a society where, where we don't get to choose what it is we do, but but it's a dangerous thing when people make choices without all of the information at hand. And I think a lot of the young people in Colorado are growing up in a world where we just kind of is, and it sort of always has been. I think about my own kids' experiences in school, and it, it's really important that if they're going to make that decision, when they make that decision, that they're, they're fully informed and not making it with limited or incorrect information. So what is the effect on a young brain? Brain. Well, there, there's a bunch of things that we're seeing, and, and there's a lot of kind of old science that's getting validated. And again, you, you have to keep in mind how little we know about some of this really high potency stuff. But the things that certainly concern us the most are the connections to mental illness, particularly psychosis, which of course can manifest itself in a whole lot of different ways. But you, you see um, higher rates of anxiety, depression. Uh, when somebody begins earlier, you see higher rates of bipolar disorder. And then it's a lot more complicated to treat that bipolar disorder, probably because they're always changing the brain chemistry. And then I think one of the most interesting things, I think of a conversation I had with a high school last week, is the connection. And we don't know if it's causal, but we know there's a, a strong connection between cannabis use in the young brain and increased risk of attempted suicide. Hmm. Enough of my questions, Ben Court. I want to know what kids ask you. Most often. The very first question I'm going to get <laughs> will be if I really believe that marijuana is addictive. And if you'll allow me to answer that question, uh, yeah. I, I like to answer that to young people by telling them I believe that marijuana is addictive in the same way that I believe that Wyoming lies directly north of Colorado. Addiction isn't just something that you arbitrarily assign a diagnosis like that to. It, it takes objective diagnostic criteria. So I always kind of try and bring it back to that, maybe a little less of the pejorative and saying addict, addict, this is what a alcoholic looks like and that's what a junkie looks like, and less of that and more of do you meet the diagnostic criteria for substance use disorder? What do you mean when you say that to them about addiction, that it's possible but not a given? Oh, yeah, it's certainly possible, and it's absolutely not a given. Um, okay. Just like all of the other substances we know, kind of depending on how we slice this up and, and look at it, um, you've only got a, about a 40% chance of developing an addiction to heroin if you consume it. So certainly all of these substances that have potential for addiction, it's never is a guaranteed addiction. Mm. But what young people have to understand is with this particular drug, maybe even more so than a lot of the other ones we see, the thing that really matters is how early they start 
how frequently they consume and how potent uh, the THC is in it. And if you start early, uh, so like, I mean, teenage years certainly freak us out. What, what we want to do is have everybody wait until their frontal lobes are fully myelinated, which is mid-20s. Use before that, uh, use frequently and use of the strong stuff really pretty dramatically increases the risks of not just addiction, but of some of those mental health disorders that we discussed. What's the trickiest question you've gotten from a kid? <laughs> well, the trickiest one that you always get are when kids start asking you about loved ones. You know, the, what you really want to avoid doing is sending everybody home wagging a finger <laughs> uh, because it's a different deal for your uncle who's got a tumor than it is for your 15-year-old brain. Oh, but so, I, can, I can imagine young people hearing your advice, absorbing it, and then, uh, because I was this way, coming home as a know-it-all. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I certainly was, too. And I, listen, I've got a ninth grader, a seventh grader, and a fourth grader. I kind of know a little bit about know-it-alls. You, in, in discussing something that has so much nuance, one of the hardest things is this desire that, that we have, and, and we as maybe humanity, but certainly Americans, to create absolutes around it, to have litmus tests that are associated with, you know, Republicans are always right, Democrats are always wrong, weed is always good. Weed is always bad. And to try and get a, a young brain to understand nuance is really tricky. Ryan, I, I don't know everything that there is to know about this. I don't think anybody does. And I think it's really important that the, the kids hear you say that. And um, I answer plenty of questions by saying, that's a good question. Here's a researcher I know you might want to look into. Why don't we? Because <laughs> you can't claim to know it all. We're talking about how to talk to kids about marijuana with Ben Court. He's a marijuana educator and the author of Weed, Inc. He lives in Boulder, and uh, he struggled himself with addiction as a teen. Okay, Ben Court, what is the best question you've gotten from a young person at the various talks you've given to school groups, etc.? I had a kid once when I was telling him uh, that a premyelinated frontal lobe, so before 26, really couldn't benefit from introducing THC into it and some of the uh, disadvantages. And a kid raised his hand in the back and he said, well, listen, given the fact that Jimi Hendrix was in his mid-20s when he died, he wrote, recorded, played his music when he had a pre-developed frontal lobe. Don't you think the world's a better place because of Jimi Hendrix's music? <laughs> How did you I mean, I have to know how you answered. I said, good Lord, yes. Like, I don't know where I'd be without Purple Haze and all along the Watchtower. And the um, and the trick there for me was, as, as somebody who works inside of substance abuse and always sees the worst, that the constant struggle that I have personally is not applying my own sample group bias to the rest of the world, because I only see the worst. And so what I wanted to come back with was, can, can we all think tragically kind of how things ended for Jimi Hendrix? And, and was it causation? Was it correlation? Was it... But I don't think... I would have gotten very far with him. I, I kind of laughed with him and, and said, yes, of course, and then tried to discuss a little bit the differences between what Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley and, and those guys were consuming back in the 60s and 70s ah. versus what's out there today. What words do you have for parents? I mean, especially ones who partake. Your words are so influential on your kids. 
And I think a lot of the times we forget this. So even if an adult consumes, it's still a very important message to tell your kids that it's not for them. And does that, does I, that mean that parents shouldn't use in front of their kids, do you think? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> can answer that one for sure. Because Why? Because that reduces their perception of harm and because kids have a really difficult time distinguishing between what we do and, and what we say to them. But it gets a little bit easier if they're not necessarily uh, seeing it. So there's an idea that maybe we, we want to have completely open relationships with our kids and we, we want to tell them everything. And what we have to remember is we've got to compartmentalize a little bit when it comes to discussing stuff with our kids. They're not quite ready for the entire world that my 40-year-old brain is able to digest. I mean, I think about the complexities of talking about things like suicide and how complicated and frustrating the political system can be with a younger brain. So it's actually really important for parents to, um, yes, to not consume in front of them. I'd, and I would tell you the same thing, certainly about tobacco and an ideal world, alcohol as well. But um, I'm just kind of telling you what I wish we did. And it's also very important that, that we as parents, again, even if we don't feel like they're hearing us, that we tell them, hey, th this isn't for your brain yet. I'd like to reflect on your time working in substance abuse treatment at UC Health, I think mostly in admissions. You were there in 2013 when recreational marijuana was legalized. And I wonder if you noticed a change there after legalization. Yeah, I certainly did. And this is kind of one of the tough things to elaborate on because we saw such a significant change, but the data always lags. And what we started to see, it really was more like the 2014 when we started seeing storefronts, were admissions for THC only being something that you saw several of a month to being something that you saw several times a week. And then um, some of the complexities that went along with it, like detoxing from THC, which get a completely and totally new phenomenon. Ten years ago, there was not a, a physical dependence that was being created on this, but because it's changed so much. There was a huge learning curve, uh, not just inside of the chemical dependency treatment program, but the psychiatry departments, the uh, emergency departments, as we were all kind of trying to figure out how people were interacting with the way that it had changed and how we could best serve them. That is the power, the strength of the strains was sending people to the hospital, in short. Yeah, it, it really was, as well as the, and, and again, when we discuss the strains of the plant, it's, I think, very important to remember how much concentrated THC we are consuming in, in Colorado. So the amount of concentrates that we started consuming really led to a lot of head scratching and saying, okay, how do we best meet these people's needs and, and treat what's going on with them? And to be clear, were those people adults? Were they young people? Were they both only adults. UCH has a completely different track for young people, so I was only interacting with adults. Okay. We know, of course, that drugs, including marijuana, can be uh, a way of self-medicating if you're struggling. And so it seems to me that mental health is a natural part of the discussion with marijuana. Do you find one is easier to talk about with young people than the other? What a great question, and thank you for asking that. 
I think that in today's world where, you know, half of Hollywood is in recovery and we talk about our sobriety so freely, there's really no stigma that I feel in saying, hey, I'm Ben Court, I'm a recovering drug addict. Um, but there's a lot of stigma for people to say, I've struggled with bipolar disorder, or depression or anxiety. So for me, it's really important when I talk to young people to, in addition to say, hey, I'm, I'm Ben Court and I also struggle with a major depressive disorder as well as PTSD. And I treat those things in these ways. And, and I think it's so important to kind of change the stigma around those to discuss them as the health issues that they are and not kind of the the stigmatized nonsense that it's been for centuries. I think what I hear you saying is that there's actually less stigma around substance abuse than there is around mental illness. I feel that. And I don't know if that would necessarily pan out in national surveys. I haven't seen any, but I absolutely feel that, that it's way easier to say I'm a recovering alcoholic than it is to say I'm somebody who's treating a depressive disorder because we tend to see those people as kind of broken or or something's wrong in there. And to quote a, a dear friend of mine on the national spotlight who says this all the time, that the brain is a part of the body. And just because we have an illness or something that's not quite working right inside of our brain doesn't make it not real just because we can't see it. And and so I think we can model that to the kids, too, to say this is real and, and this is how I'm interacting with it. Okay, what's your best advice for how parents should talk to kids about marijuana? Um, perhaps if they discover their kid is using marijuana. The first thing that I tell them is that it's really important to get an understanding of what the severity is, because I think there are a lot of parents out there who might break the glass and hit the button when it's really nothing that we have to be that worried about right now at this moment. And then on the flip side of that, I see parents whose nonchalant attitude towards it keeps them from acting when they should. So really the first thing is you want to get a decent understanding of what the severity of things are. And and for that's usually just frequency and method of consumption. You can tell a whole lot about what's going on with a kid depending on how often they're using it and kind of what forms they choose to consume. And then the next thing I I try to tell parents, and maybe this will help some of our listeners, is try as well as you can not to have these conversations during times of crisis. You know, if your kid comes in at two in the morning and he was driving stoned and you're absolutely livid about everything – that's not really when you want to get into it because what we do then is, you know, our, our hackles get raised and we end up yelling back and forth instead of having productive conversations. I always really encourage parents to maybe like um, take them out for lunch or take them to dinner and ask them more questions than you're telling them and, and just try and get an idea where they're at. And then once we've got an idea where they're at, thank God we live in a state with such absolutely amazing resources to help out. You just got to find the right resources. Thank you for being with us. It's been my pleasure, sir. Ben Court of Boulder is a marijuana educator and author of Weed, Inc. Let's get your feedback now in Loud and Clear. There's a shortage of American Sign Language interpreters in rural Colorado. We heard on Friday's show about how to meet the need. Listener Laura Sugg of Wheat Ridge emailed wondering if technology might help. While face-to-face interpreters who are well-trained are the optimal solution, would one step be to provide technology or smartphones with video capabilities so that well-trained interpreters, either in the Denver area or the Front Range, 
could interpret for emergency or medical or legal situations in rural settings when getting a trained interpreter to a location was too difficult. Well, Laura, we asked our guest, Trish Lakey of the Colorado Commission for the Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and Deafblind. Lakey is deaf and speaks here through an interpreter. We do have something known as video remote interpreting, and that is a situation where you use the internet to access an interpreter on the video monitor. So the deaf person can use American Sign Language to sign to an interpreter through video. But in the rural areas, the problem is, is you do have to have a solid broadband signal that will provide a clear video picture so that the signs can be clear. Otherwise, signs become jerky. Sometimes the technology is not working in a manner that makes it possible for communication to take place. So it's a solution, not the solution. We love your questions and feedback. Find all the ways to reach out at CPR.org connect. Speaking of your input, we want your thoughts on the air you breathe. Here's why. A new report finds Denver is one of 12 U.S. metro areas most polluted by ground-level ozone. That's according to the American Lung Association's latest state of the air. Los Angeles was the worst. The group's Janice Nolan says many U.S. cities are seeing more ozone and particle pollution, some at record levels. And partially that's because of climate change. And that certainly is one of the trends that we're seeing in Colorado is showing that exactly same thing. Beyond Metro Denver, several other parts of Colorado got low marks for air quality. So we want to know what your experience is with air quality, what health concerns you have and what questions you'd like answered. Email me news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org or tweet at CPR Warner. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour on CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Business has a big stake in what happens at the Colorado Capitol. And as you probably know, it's been a whirlwind of a session. Lawmakers adjourn Friday. And before they do, let's get a read on a raft of new regulations passed with Democrats in total control. Ed Sealover covers the legislature for the Denver Business Journal. Ed, thanks for being here again. Thanks for having me on today, Ryan. I wonder how you're holding up first off. This has been a busy session for you, too. It's been a very busy session, you know, and, and that's great in some ways because it means there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion going on. But I think for the business community, this has not been the kind of debate and discussion they were hoping for. What do you mean by that? There's a lot of bills that are aimed squarely at adding regulations to business from uh, what kind of paid leave they must provide to what kind of questions they can ask while hiring to uh, how they have to make sure there's equal pay between men and women. Uh, and while all the goals are notable ones, business leaders say. The methods in getting there have not been their preferred ones. Expound on that. Is that uh, put at the foot of Democrats in control of the legislature? 
Absolutely. And I mean, these are all bills that everyone knew was coming. The Democrats had pushed over the last four years when there was a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. They would pass out of the House. They would die in the Senate. Um, but I'll give you an example. The equal pay bill uh, that could get its final vote before it goes to the governor today. Everyone agrees men and women should be paid equally. This bill would require uh, that employers can't ask about applicants past salary history and job interviews. It must require them to advertise the job to everyone in the company, whether or not people are qualified for it. And it opens up a new right of private action where employees can sue their bosses if they feel they've been wrong this way. Uh, employers say this is just going to open up lawsuits galore, and it's not really going to do anything to advance the cause of equal pay in the state of Colorado. But that will have to be seen, I suppose, after implementation if it indeed becomes law. Absolutely. And I think that's the theme of any bill, uh, whether about business or not this session, is the, the questions linger about what will happen in the future. Uh, right now, it's just speculation on both sides. Talk to us about paid family leave. That's had an interesting course over this session. It has. Uh, another bill, same idea. Everyone thinks, yes, employers should be offering paid family leave. Opponents say 88% of employees don't have it. Employers say that's a wrong stat because most employers that are they're dealing with in these big business groups offer some sort of it, but maybe not what the state wants them to offer. So what the Democrats had put forward was a plan that was you know, very one-size-fits-all, if you will, said everyone must have uh, access to 12 weeks of partially paid leave for a new child, an ailing family member to take care of their own illness. Uh, Businesses said, look, the way that this is being introduced is going to be a burden on businesses and it's going to be a burden on state resources. And they got enough Democrats in the Senate to question, especially that second part about how much this would cost the state and whether it was a fiscally solvent program that last week the sponsors bumped it back to a study of this program and will come back in 2020 with a different bill. Uh, in some, some of the business community say this is the biggest win of the session. This is a billion-dollar program we've averted until further study. But proponents of paid family leave say these women especially need it now to bond with their new children. And this is just going to delay something that will help them. Hmm. Is a study a version of failure or is a study a win of some sort? It depends where you're starting from. Uh, For example, I'm just going to contrast with another bill that this year is going to pass that uh, creates a study of a retirement savings system that came in as a study. It's going to go to the governor as a study. We'll be signed into uh, law. This is requiring the state to put forward a retirement savings system to uh, allow workers at companies who don't uh, have such an option at their companies to join into it. The paid family leave bill, however, this was its fifth run in the past six years. And even proponents of it are saying we don't need another study. We've talked about this for five years. So there is a little bit of a feeling of inadequacy here. Like we tried, this didn't go through. Um, You know, maybe the question is what's going to be different in 2020? I think it points to the fact that Democrats may have total control, but that doesn't mean that they have total um, cooperation in the party. Not only that, I think it it points to the fact that business bills can be a little bit different than kind of your typical uh, partisan bills. I contrast these, for example, to the oil and gas regulatory bill, Senate Bill 181, that went through earlier this session. There were some changes made, but not any that changed anybody's position. And and, and Democrats were very united on the fact that we need more regulations in place around oil and gas. With some of these business bills, I think they've seen a surprising amount of pushback from small businesses in their 
districts that are making them think twice about them. That was really the case with paid family leave, where a number of Democrats said, hey, look, I just never thought exactly about what this would do to some businesses. Small businesses said this is going to hurt our ability to hire. It's going to cost us too much. And I think you look at someone like Pete Lee, who's a Democratic senator out of Colorado Springs, Hmm. who most people have never really considered a swing vote before, but who was one of the keys in bumping that back to a study because he heard so much from his local business community that he had to put a pause on his supporting it going forward. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Ed C. Lover of the Denver Business Journal is back with us talking about business-related bills at the state capitol, uh, the session, of course, winding down this week. Uh, so several bills had dealt with wages this session. In Colorado, like in many states, uh, wages were slow to grow out of the Great Recession. I think one bill still under consideration would allow local governments to raise minimum wages in, you know, in a specific area. Um, was there a theme, do you think, in these wage measures? Yeah, in fact, I actually think there was almost a theme between this bill you're talking about, House Bill 1210, which would allow cities and counties to raise their minimum wage above the state level as much as 15 percent a year. Um, uh, and and also the affordable housing bills. And they may not seem uh, to be the same thing, but they were both about the increasing cost of living and how we deal with that. Uh, one way to deal with that is to give cities like Denver, like Boulder, like Aspen that have higher costs of living – a chance to raise the wage as there's been some interest, particularly in Denver, uh, about raising the wage above the state's uh, minimum level, which would be $12 come January 1st. Right. Um, and, and these affordable housing bills, you see, whether they be bills to uh, allow cities to impose rent control or uh, bills that will make it harder for someone to evict uh, a tenant just because they're a few days late on the rent. They're about, hey, we need to do something to help people afford where they live, to not give up too much of their money to housing and to be able to afford food and medicine and other things like that. So that's the theme. It's cost of living that's playing out in several different ways here. Business groups are major supporters of transportation funding for the most part, and they got something of a win, right? Lawmakers have agreed to about $300 million more in spending. Absolutely. That was a decent size win in the budget, though they got $650 million in one-time spending last year in the budget. So it's not as big a win as they, they have already. Um, but they're going to have two other bills that could be big wins for them. One that's expected to pass out of the Senate today would set up a ballot initiative in November that would allow the state to what's called debruce itself. That would mean keeping any money over the state's taxpayers' bill of rights revenue cap permanently uh, and putting that money one-third, one-third, one-third to higher ed K-12 and transportation. They think that's going to be a great infusion for transportation, especially when the economy is booming. Uh, Another bill that uh, just got introduced over this weekend would allow the state to pull from the ballot this year a $2.3 billion bonding initiative that had been set up in a bill last year. And you might think, oh, that doesn't sound good for transportation. But the fear is that that would fail after a bigger bonding initiative failed last year. And it would also interrupt the flow of money created, and this is a bit wonky, in a 2017 bill. Uh, that allows $500 million a year to go toward transportation projects if it were to go to the ballot. So uh, yeah, transportation is seeing some slight gains, though let's not forget we still have a $7.1 billion long-term unfunded infrastructure backlog. Ed Sealover connecting the dots from one session to the next. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. He covers the state legislature for the Denver Business Journal. State lawmakers have until Friday to finish their work. We'll keep you updated on these key decisions at CPR.org and here on CPR News. 
Denver is choosing a mayor. And between now and Election Day, May 7th, Colorado Matters teams up with Denverite to profile the frontrunners. First up, Lisa Calderon. She has a law degree and a doctorate in education. She teaches criminal justice and sociology at Regis University and co-chairs the Colorado Latino Forum. We are asking the leading candidates in the mayor's race the same questions. So, why is Calderon running? And what does she think is the city's biggest challenge? I'm running because I want to see a new direction for Denver. I think we need new leadership, a fresh vision. There are so many people who are feeling left out of the prosperity of Denver, and I want to uplift those voices, mm-hmm. um, particularly workers who mm-hmm. are you know, helping the city run but are feeling increasingly pushed out. They have not felt like their voices have been heard. I'm also a strong supporter for residents and resident-led development, mm-hmm. meaning that our future planning should start with the residents in, in their neighborhoods rather than it being pushed out by City Hall. So, you know, being able to live, work, and play in the same city is becoming harder and harder to do, and we can simply not afford another four years of this administration because many struggling families won't be able to live here. A reference there to the incumbent Michael Hancock, who's seeking a third and final term. Lisa Calderon's view of the issues isn't all that different from other candidates in this race. So how is she differentiating herself? First of all, I'm not associated with big developers or the establishment of the political parties. I represent first and foremost the people. And, you know, that means that I put those concerns of working class people first we have not had a voice for them throughout the course of this administration. So I come from an equity lens. The three pillars of my campaign are equity, fairness, and justice. And equity means that you look and see who's not at the table, who's not being represented. And those are the people that we prioritize. Right now, the city is being built for the wealthiest, and those are the voices that are being prioritized through big development. So I would flip that because when we help struggling families and folks on fixed incomes, then we are essentially helping everybody because those are the folks with the most uh, complex uh, issues that we really need to you know, take a more comprehensive policymaking approach to. So those answers were gathered by Denverite city reporter David Sachs. And uh, David, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You're going to help us ground what we just heard from Lisa Calderon and from the other candidates that we'll hear from this week. There's this sense that she's sort of the people's candidate, I guess. That's certainly what she wants to be seen as. She really wants to lift up women and minorities. If a woman gets elected mayor of Denver, they will be the first women to ever run the city of Denver. It's never happened. Never happened before. So she really plays that up a lot and says it's time, you know, to have a woman in office. And she would love to be seen as a people's candidate. uh, And she has worked a lot with the people. She used to run a nonprofit um, actually, the contracted with the city for about 10 years. Uh, but Mayor Hancock ended that contract last year, and she actually sued the mayor over this. So she has some personal uh, things involved in this race as well. What was this contract for? This contract was to help people who are exiting the jail system uh, reintegrate into society. It's something that the city, you know, obviously needs. And uh, there was a little bit of a gap in service after they uh, let that contract go and before they signed another one. 
Is there a specific policy proposal she has to, uh, as she has said, bring more people into prosperity or perhaps have resident-led development? Well, she wants to alert neighbors earlier of any development coming in and also force developers to provide affordable housing units as opposed to paying into an affordable housing fund. David, thank you. Thank you. David Sachs covers the city for Denverite, which is now a part of Colorado Public Radio, and together we're profiling the leading candidates for Denver mayor. Tomorrow, Jamie Gillis. You can find a complete guide to the municipal election May 7th at denverite.com. This week in 1975, near the end of the Vietnam War, there was a dramatic airlift. Thousands of people were evacuated from Saigon as North Vietnamese troops approached. The people here were herded into groups. All they could take was hand luggage. Fifty at a time, they took off for the carriers waiting in the South China Sea. Among the evacuees, Diana Coy Wynn's father and his family. Wynn lives in Denver. She's a poet, and her book, Ghost Of, is nominated for a Colorado Book Award. It's about the trauma of war and, years later, the loss of her brother to suicide. Diana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Let's start with a poem that begins with the fall of Saigon. I'll have you read the first part of I Keep Getting Things Wrong. I Keep Getting Things Wrong. One. My father, just out of his teens, stands on the rooftop of the embassy in Saigon, his birthplace. He gives his hand to his mother, and all around them a thousand hands reach up, not to wave. None of his siblings died, their bodies like a fine chain balled tight in a fist. They made it out alive. Why is he looking at me? Like this. Tell us how your father's family came to be a part of the evacuation before the fall of Saigon. Sure. So my grandfather worked for the American embassy, and on the 27th, the whole family arrived at the embassy, so just before the fall of Saigon, and they all left. And it's kind of like a miracle, right? Like the whole family, and there's about at least, I have 10 aunts and uncles, so it's quite a large family. And it's quite a unique story in that they were all together, and then they arrived in the U.S. in Pasadena, California, Mm. on May 2nd, and they began their new life there. And that's, you know, also kind of where my my life and my story begins as well. You, You sound in many ways surprised that your father, his family made it out. Many families didn't. I mean, my mother's family is a different story. My other grandfather, so my maternal grandfather, also worked for the embassy. And he was told on the 22nd, he was given 24 hours, and he was told by the embassy, bring whoever you want tomorrow, and you can leave. And my grandfather didn't realize that the war was ending, that the South was losing, and he had a lot of pride in the South. And so he came home and he had this big conversation with my mother's family, which is also about 11 siblings and my grandmother. Hmm. 
And they had a business. They had a pharmacy in Saigon. And in the end, they decided to have the two youngest brothers leave because they were worried about the two brothers having to go to war and fight. So, you know, to protect the male members of the family. And in the end, it was just my grandfather and the youngest uncles and my eldest aunt who left. But as they were walking to the embassy, they realized that they had made this big mistake because they saw all of, you know, the photos that we have seen of all the hands and the people trying to climb the gates, trying to get out. And it was too late for them to turn back to get the rest of the family. So, I mean, they flew out, and my mother and her grandmother and all her youngest siblings stayed behind, and they had a much different, difficult journey four years later of getting to America to reunite. Four years later. Four years later. Many attempts. The poem we opened with continues and connects to your family's life in the United States and to your brother's death. Yes. He took his own life in 2014. That is correct, in December. And some of your poetry literally takes the shape of Mm -hmm. your brother in photographs that he had cut himself out of. Yes. Tell me about that. Sure. Uh, About two years before he committed suicide, my parents woke up, and when they walked down the halls, all the family portraits looked different. Um, There were now shards missing. And in the middle of the night, my brother had cut himself out meticulously with an X-Acto knife and then slipped all the photographs back into the frames. So it was quite disturbing for my parents. And actually, for a long time, these frames remained the same, even after his death. I mean, I'd go home and I'd have to walk the halls and see these remnants. And they held they held a really disturbing resonance while he was alive and a different kind of resonance, you know, after he passed. And... It took a while for me to figure out I wanted to do something with them, especially in my grief in the mourning process as a way to kind of counteract this absence, this void, this loss, as a way to fill that, va- that space back in, in a sense, to fill him back in. Right? And so on the pages of this new collection, Ghost Of, you have poetry that is sort of squeezed into the shapes yes. of those missing images. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in one of the poems, it's called Gyotaku, and it's a series throughout the book. And Gyotaku is this really ancient Japanese form of printing, of capturing fish, right? Like today we have, you know, fishermen who take big pictures with their marlins in Florida. You know, we see that or we see like the funny like fish that's mounted on a wall. But the Japanese used to apply sumo ink and then press the fish to uh, muslin or silk. Using the fish as a stamp. Yes, the fish as a stamp. And it was a way to keep a record of what you had caught, right? Um, and I mean, when you think about that, using of ink onto paper is no different than what a book is, right? It's pr- kind of printing. And that's my medium. I write poems, which are typeface on paper. And so I took this idea of le- recording, right, and making a new kind of record to fill in that void. And the other aspect, too, is my brother was cremated and my parents scattered his ashes into the Pacific Ocean. And I think about my brother, you know, being in the fish, being in the atmosphere, being in the water, and to think about all those things and then to kind of materialize him back onto the page. And there's this other interesting aspect. We refer, you know, here in a Western country as the fall of Saigon. And in the Vietnamese, especially those who left, they refer to it as, it translates to the day we lost our country. But country is also the same word for water, Hmm. which is nuuk. And it's really fascinating to think about the day we lost, you know, water, also the day we lost our country. And I think about water and country and my brother as these particles, yeah, in the ocean. The interconnectedness is so Mm -hmm. profound. Thanks for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much.
Denver poet Diana Coy Wynn, we spoke last April. Her book Ghost Of is nominated for a Colorado Book Award. Also nominated this year, a book called Mad Boy by Denver author Nick Arvin. It's set during the War of 1812 and focuses on a 10-year-old boy named Henry Phipps. I came to love Henry the character very, very quickly. And he's, he, I love him because he's, he's resourceful. He's, he's very visceral, responds to things. And, um, and he's very determined. But why set this story in the War of 1812? I became interested in this a long time ago, back in the year 2003, when we invaded Iraq. And when we got into Baghdad, uh, there, was, there was a very poor security situation. There was a lot of looting. And there was some commentary at the time to the effect of, you know, how can the Iraqis do this to their own city? And I felt like, you know, people who are in, in desperate circumstances, um, this is kind of human nature. And uh, it seemed like an absurd complaint. And I thought, you know, I bet Americans did the same thing during the War of 1812 when the British invaded and burned Washington. And so I did a little research, and sure enough, the same thing happened back then. And uh, so I wrote a a short story at the time about a boy who was running around uh, Washington looting. And I remember I sent it to my agent, and my agent's comment was, this feels like a chapter from a novel. And I thought, oh, it's a short story. And I went on and wrote other things. And then uh, about 10 years later, I was working on, um, I'd spent about a year trying to write a sort of sci-fi novel that in hindsight was overly intellectualized and just felt cold and I wasn't having fun with it. And my son and I started going through Treasure Island. And I thought, that's what I want to do. Like a boy running around with buried treasure and muskets and cannons. And I thought of that story set during the War of 1812. And so I went back to that and started trying to figure out who this boy was and how he'd ended up in Washington by himself and what happened afterwards. Arvin says this was also an opportunity to explore little-known U.S. history, like an American effort to take over territory in Canada, which was then a British colony, and Britain's offer to free American slaves if they joined the fight, all seen through his character's eyes. For Henry, it's sort of a shock to see slaves who he knew uh, all of a sudden wearing British jackets and carrying guns, which would have been unheard of. And I felt like slavery... It was such an entangled part of America at that time. It had to be an aspect of the story. So it was, it is fascinating to me to see the, these slaves joining the British. And it, you know, as a writer, it's interesting because it forces you to think about, you know, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in this situation. Denver author Nick Arvin talking with us in June about his novel Mad Boy. It's set during the War of 1812, and it's nominated for a Colorado Book Award. The winners will be announced next month. Finally today, new music from rising country star Claire Dunn, who grew up in rural southeastern Colorado. Dunn was recently featured at the Rising Women on the Row Honors in Nashville, and she's been traveling with CMT's 2019 Next Women of Country Tour. That's alongside fellow up-and-comers Cassidy Pope and Hannah Ellis. Here's Claire Dunn's latest single, My Love. Sometimes my heart Flies too fast Sometimes a while Spark overtakes me So hard to breathe I'm burning up I need your touch To reach out and save me In my L-O-V-E Baby, yeah, you got 
The new single from Claire Dunn, who's from Two Buttes, Colorado. The Nashville star is scheduled to return to the state later this summer for a concert in Fort Collins. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.